Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us here together again as we open the Bible to see what you have to teach us tonight from Daniel chapter 7. I pray that you will help us to put away all of the other distractions that may clutter our mind right now and that we may come to you humbly and ready to receive the word that you are about to give us. Send your spirit to guide us as we study this very important topic tonight. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Alright, for those of you who were here last week, what did we cover? I guess there's only a few of you. Where do we leave off? In chapter 7. Yep, we went through verse 6. What did we see so far? We saw three We saw three beasts. First, we saw a lion with eagle's wings. We saw a bear with three ribs in his mouth that was raised up on one side. We saw a leopard with uh, four, four heads and then four wings of a fowl. And we went through and we went through the characteristics and we concluded that, first of all, Babylon is the first beast, the lion with eagle's wings. The bear with the three ribs in his mouth represented the kingdom of Medo-Persia. And the kingdom represented by the leopard-like beast is uh, the kingdom of Greece. And we went through the characteristics quite rapidly, and we established a principle of Bible study called, or not, there's not a name for it, but when we uh, study prophecy, the two most important things we must discover first, um, as in order to identify a prophetic entity, is time and location. The time in which the person or object that's being described arises, and also the location from which, where it arises to. So we're going to touch on that a little bit more, and um, let me tell you what I'm going to do today. We're going to go through quickly the fourth beast and the ten horns. We're going to just touch on the ten, or, or the little horn of chapter seven, very briefly, and we're going to discuss the judgment concept tonight, and after I get back in three weeks, then we'll finish chapter 7 by discussing the little horn in detail. So let's begin looking at the fourth beast, uh, Daniel 7, verse 7. Someone please read that verse for us. Alright, we see this beast, the first three beasts, he could somehow relate it with an animal that can be found in nature. But this fourth beast, he could not identify it. And I believe there's a reason why. Um, we'll come to that in a moment. But firstly, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. Very interesting, we're not going to take the time to look at these verses if you're writing them down. Daniel 9 verse 4, Deuteronomy 7 verse 21 and Psalm 68, verse 35, it gives us that, it tells us that the, the description, dreadful and terrible, these are characteristics that apply to God. Uh, this beast somehow is dreadful and terrible. It's used, it, these words are used to describe it, meaning in a negative connotation, 
but on the positive side of things, these, these words are also used to describe God. And somehow this beast have characteristics. It's almost trying to take the place of God. And we continue. We see, and strong exceedingly. We'll come back to that and uh, the great iron teeth in a moment. It devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. Uh, the concept stamped with its feet, if you look in Psalms 91 verse 13, uh, we see that Jesus Christ, he tramples on the lions and the adders. So the trampling concept, it's also a concept that applies to Christ. And breaking in pieces, you can look in Psalms 2 verse 7 through 9, that Christ breaks in pieces um, with a rod of iron, the pots, so to say. So this beast has several characteristics that is a, a play off of, or it's the opposite of, the same attributes of Christ. And um, instead of trampling on lines and adders as Christ did, it says it's trampling the residue. And what's the, what does residue mean, the word? Leftover, and what's another word in Bible prophecy that is the same as that which is left? Remnant, exactly. So this this beast is trampling with his feet instead of the lions and the adders. In a sense, he's trampling the remnant. And the remnant in the Bible, the concept of the remnant of God are his people, the remnant of his people. And we're going to see that as very significant in the next chapter, chapter eight. Now, I want to take a step back here um, and look at um, a couple of characteristics. First, it says, strong exceedingly, and they had great iron teeth. Now, when we, when we studied Daniel chapter 2, what was the major characteristic of the legs of iron? What was the first and foremost, the primary characteristic that was emphasized for the feet of iron, or the legs of iron? Elwin's whispered it. Let's just look there. Daniel 2. Verse 40. It says, And the fourth kingdom shall be strong as iron. That's the first characteristic characteristic that's described. For as much as iron breaks in pieces and subdues all things, and and as iron that breaks all these and break in pieces and bruise. So it's talking about destructive strength destructive power. And the same characteristic is brought out clearly with this fourth beast. Now, I'm not, I know I just breeze through that really fast. Um, one last point before we move on. It says, it devoured. For those of you who were here last week, we discussed this, the, the importance of the term devoured. When you eat something or when you devour something, you take that and make it a part of yourself. You don't really Yes, it's destroyed, but it's not destroyed in the sense that it is totally wiped off the face of the earth. It is destroyed, but it is then made a part of yourself. And this is very important. Why? Because this beast devoured the three previous beasts. And by devouring the three previous beasts, it is no longer just another beast, but it is a comprehensive beast. It has the characteristics of all three previous kingdoms. And we saw that when we looked at the second kingdom, 
uh, the bear, it says, Arise, devour much flesh. We saw in Daniel chapter 6 that the Medo-Persian Empire assimilated Daniel into their system. They carried over, they made Babylon a part of themselves. Whereas when the third kingdom came, the leopard beast, it did not devour anything. And if you think back, the Greek Empire, the Greek influence overshadowed all of the other nations. In fact, in our society today, the Greek influence is still predominant and it is still prevalent in everything that we do, from math to education to philosophy, history, astronomy, science, all of those things. And that's also because this fourth beast devoured the first three beasts. And just as a side note, we're not going to go there tonight. If you think to Revelation chapter 13, it mentions a beast arise out of the out of the sea, the first beast in Revelation 13. And it is a composite beast. It has feet of a bear, body of a leopard, heads or, a, or mouth like a lion. It is a comprehensive beast. And I tend to think that the fourth beast probably looks like that beast. And we're not going to go in depth into that right now. But let's keep going. Verse 7, it continues and it says, The residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. Now that word diverse is very interesting. I looked at the definition in the original language. And the word diverse doesn't just simply mean different or, or unlike the previous beast. The word diverse means to be changed or to be altered. So this fourth beast is an alteration of the first three beasts, based on the definition of that word. And you may be wondering why it's so important. It will become important further on in the future. But then we come to the ten horns. Okay, and it had ten horns. Verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. Let's pause there for a moment. This beast had ten horns. Now let's look in verse 17. Oops, sorry, not verse 17. Verse 24. Someone read verse 24. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise, and another shall rise after them. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. All right. Very quickly, the Bible explains these horns represent ten kings. So ten, on top of this beast, which we know is a nation, from uh, verse 17, there are ten kings that arise out of this nation. Out of this nation, meaning it is still a part of the nation, and geographically it's within the nation. Um, but yet, they are, they are ten separate kingdoms. So... Looking at history, the Roman Empire, because we equated that with the legs of iron, um, was divided into ten barbaric tribes. Let me just give you the names of them very quickly, if you're interested. The Anglo-Saxon, the Franks, the Suevi, Visigoths, Burgundians, um, Alamanni, the Lombards, Ostrogoths, Heruli, and the Vandals. If you want the list later, I can give it to you. But the ten kings... These ten kings were given for, I believe, one primary purpose. And that is to help us identify the time and the location of the little horn power. 
So the Bible gives very little description to the ten horns. I'm not going to go through all of the details, going through all of the kingdoms, all of the characteristics. That's not what we need to do tonight. There's something far more important I want to cover. But based on that, we already discussed when we're trying to identify something in prophecy, we must first determine the time and the location. And I, like I said, the ten horns of this fourth beast gives us the time and the location of the little horn. Now, let's see what it says. First, verse 8, it says, I considered the horns, and there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. So, just tell me, based on this verse, just using the Bible language, where does the little horn arise? That's right. Among the ten horns. So the little horn comes up among the ten horns. And when does it come up? When the three were plucked up. Exactly right. So based on just this verse and just simple observation, the little horn power arises in the midst of these ten horns, and it arises when three of the horns are plucked up. And to be more specific, um, let's look at, let's see which one, verse 24. We already read it. It says, and he shall, and another shall arise after them. Okay, that's the time. And he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. So, he comes up after the three kings that are plucked up. And my mental picture, it says, before whom were three plucked up. It's like the little horn is it's like a tooth coming up. But he pushes out two, three of the teeth or horns as it comes out. So, more specifically, it comes up in the area where the three horns previously stood. And if you just look in history, let's see what, how much time we have here. Um, let's just go through it very quickly. Uh, so we need to look at the ten tribes of the division of Europe at, after the fall of Roman Empire and see which three kingdoms were plucked up and when they were plucked up and where they were located. Now, just looking at, just you can look in your history books. I'm assuming that you've heard this before, so I'm not going to great lengths to prove this. First of all, the Hirali nation was located in Italy, the Italian peninsula. And in the year 493, they were eradicated for the purpose of their um, heresy. Religious beliefs that they held. And second, the Vandals, which was located in North Africa, um, was uprooted in the year AD 534. And finally, in the year 538, the Ostrogoths, who were in occupation of the city of Rome at the time, they were cast out and destroyed. If you look at very carefully where these three nations are located, it is all situated around the Italian peninsula. So therefore, we can assume that this nation will arise sometime after 538. And also, it will arise in the area where these three kingdoms used to rule. So even without looking at 
the whole long list of all of the other characteristics of this little horn. Eyes of a man, spake great things, made war the saints, time times, half the times, thought to change times and laws, without even looking at those characteristics. We can already put our finger on a very narrow strip as to where and who this little horn power is. Like I said, we're not going to discuss that tonight. Um, we'll come back to it in a, on a future night. Okay. Let's go back to verse 8, and we're going to slow things down a little bit now. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were open. I beheld, then, because of the, wor of the voice of the great words which the, which the horn spake. I beheld, even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts... They had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days. And they brought him near before him, and there was given him dominion and glory, and a kingdom, and all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Pause there for a moment. Verse 14 marks the exact middle of this chapter and also marks perhaps the sharpest dis distinction, sharpest separation between the two parts. The first half of the chapter describes, Daniel's describing the vision as he sees it. But when he comes to verse 15, the vision is over and the rest of the chapter is him getting more explanation on what has been seen. So now, just based on the vision that he is seeing, this is the, just going in rapid succession, this is the vision, that, this is the sequence, and this is how the vision is being passed before him. Very quickly, just one verse he sees, in one verse he describes what he sees in the lion beast. One verse he describes the bear beast. One verse he describes the leopard beast. One verse he describes the dreadful beast. One verse he describes the little horn. And then he pauses. Verse 9 Verse 10, um, I guess verse 11 also. Verse 12 is not so much, but 13 and 14. 9 through 14 pretty much. He just stops and he talks about what he sees in the judgment scene. He sees more of it, I can say. So it's like God is showing him this video, bam, 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 and then he sees this long, longer portion about this judgment vision. So just based on the sequence of events, God is trying to somehow bring Daniel's attention to the end of the vision. Because you remember, in Daniel chapter 2, he's already gone through the same vision. Or not same vision, but the same sequence of nations. Head of gold, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. You know, the little horn power equated is also the same as during the time of the feet of iron and clay. But God wants to expand 
Daniel's understanding of the latter part of the vision. So he purposefully just runs through, review with him, adding a little bit more information for the previous four kingdoms, and then he comes to the judgment and he pauses, and then he plays it in slow motion. So now, we need to look at this judgment scene very carefully. Why? Because this is something new. This, this is the additional information that God wants to give us. So let's go through this carefully, step by step. Let's begin in verse 9. And even still, we're not going to go through all of it, uh, every single point. So the little horn, quickly described, and it comes to the judgment scene. I beheld, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the, and the Ancient of Days did sit. So Daniel here, he, 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 he uses this word called cast down, but the original language, it simply means set up. So the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days did sit. So now, this is the judgment scene, correct? And based on the end of verse 10, it says the judgment was set. So this is the beginning of judgment. The timing is crucial. It is the beginning of judgment. This is the picture that Daniel sees of the beginning of the judgment. And, when, and the judgment takes place after the little horn power arises. Because it says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down. So he was beholding the little horn until the judgment was set. So this is critical because the judgment was not set until after the little horn was in power. Why is that so crucial? Because amongst many Christian denominations today, they say that Christ entered the most holy place and began the judgment process when he ascended up to heaven in AD 31. But the little horn power did not ascend until after 538, as we already discussed. So the, the judgment must take place sometime after 31 AD. It could not have taken place when Jesus ascended up to heaven. That's why this is so important. And the next point, the thrones were cast down, the thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days did sit. I'm still curious, I'm still studying why the Bible uses this this unique term, ancient of days. I still have not really figured out the full meaning. But we can understand that this is God the Father because the Son of Man comes later on. So we see here that the ancient of days did sit. So if sitting represents the beginning of judgment, what represents the end of judgment? when he stands up. But first, let's look at a verse in Matthew. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, verse 47. Um, can someone read that Verse 47 to verse 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered, a good, uh, and gathered the good into vessels 
but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and, and sever the wicked uh, from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay. This is a parable. But in the parable, it is describing a work of separation. They gather all the fish. It's a great harvest almost. And then they drew to shore, and they have good and bad fish. But they sit down. The Bible carefully mentions that. But sitting down, what type, what, what type of work are they doing then? Judging. They're judging. They're determining what is good and what is bad. In other words, it is an investigation that's going on. It's not just an execution of judgment. Specifically, when the judgment is set, it's talking about not just the execution of final punishment, but it is talking about the investigation of the, of the individuals that are being judged. Because there will be some who say that the judgment in Daniel chapter 7 is the second coming, is the final destruction, but that is not the case. It is the beginning of the investigative portion of the judgment. Okay, now let's go to Acts. Acts chapter 7, verse 55. This is something we'll be coming back to um, when we get to Daniel chapter 9. But just to give you a preview. Acts 7, verse 50, uh, 55 and 56. Let me read that one. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. This we understand to be the end of the 70-week prophecy or is the 70-week probation time cut out for the Israel people. And at the end of this time of, of determination on the uh, on the people of God, or the final period of judgment. Stephen, who is, what we're ta who is uh, being talked about here, he looks up and he sees open, the heavens opened, and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But we know from the book of Hebrews that when Jesus ascended into the heavens, he was set down at the right hand of God. So the standing up has a very significant um, Importance. Now let's go back to Daniel. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. I don't know if we're going to have much time to go over Daniel 12, so I'm going to give it to you now. Daniel 12, verse 1. Uh, can someone read that? At that time, Mikhail, the great prince who protects your people will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Okay, very good. So, chapter 12, just as a preview, the, chap the 12th chapter of Daniel will describe the events that take place after the judgment is completed. Because they sit down to commence judgment, and they stand up when the judgment is finished. It's just that simple. But just hang on to your, uh, hang on to that thought. We'll come back and we will prove this. We will prove that Daniel chapter twelve verse one is talking about the end of the investigative judgment even clearer um, as we continue. All right. So the ancient of days did sit. 
whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. Now, talking about, we'll come back if we have time to the description of the Ancient of Days, but I want to look at his throne. His throne, it says, was like the fiery flame, and his wheels of burning fire. Now, the most interesting word in this description of his throne is the word wheels. Because most people's thrones is stationary. A throne doesn't move. It doesn't go anywhere. It's not a chariot. It's a throne. It's not supposed to, to move. But I want to look at Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. can read that. Ezekiel 10, 1 and 2. Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubims, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spake unto the man clothed with linen, and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubims, and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. Okay, this is just one of the few verses uh, that in another place, somebody sees the throne of God, which is what's being depicted, and underneath the throne there are wheels. And um, in other places it talks about the wheels being a wheel within a wheel, but we're not going to discuss that too much. But this is just the point. God's throne has wheels, so that means it doesn't have to be in the same place. God's throne can move from place to place. Now, what is the significance of that? Somehow, people seem to think that the God the Father is immovable, like he's stuck. And he cannot be any other place except the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. But it tells me that his throne has wheels. And in other places, it actually talks about the throne of God moving. So that simply... That point just simply says that God did not have to be only, does not have to be only in the most holy place. Now, what's the significance of that? Some would venture to say that because in the book of Hebrews it says that Christ went into the presence of God, that it must and can only be the most holy place. I mean, he went in in, after his ascension. So they say that because of that, Christ must have and could only have gone into the most holy place because that's, that's the only place where God is. But the fact that God's throne has wheels tells me that God not only has the capability of moving, but He does move. So He doesn't have to be just in the most holy place. So that argument doesn't hold any water. So God's throne has wheels. Now next, verse 10, A fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. First of all, a fiery stream. I'm, I'm not going to look at that too much, um, because I don't think it to be a major point. 
But I just want to say this, that in the book of Psalms, I don't have the exact verse with me, um, the fire that proceedeth out of the Lord is synonymous with lightning. And then in the book of Revelation, verse uh, chapter 4, we see that lightning proceeds from the throne of God. And in both Revelation and Daniel, we see that when the lightning goes forth and the fiery stream is issued, it talks about the angels, thousands, thousands, ten thousand times ten thousands that minister unto him. And um, we also know that God has his angels as his messengers to carry forth his work and his biddings upon the earth. And I've heard it explained that the fiery stream and the lightning is synonymous. And because you remember one angel came down to, on resurrection morning for Jesus and it was like, had the appearance of lightning. So when God hears the prayer of one of his saints, he sends forth his angels to answer that prayer. And because they fly so fast and so bright, that it looks like, it looks like lightning. It looks like the fiery stream that's coming out before him. And that's very significant in this passage. Why is that? Because this is talking about the judgment message. So in the same, at the same time that God is setting up the judgment to judge the people of the world, He is still sending forth His thousands of thousands, ten thousand times ten thousands of angels to answer the prayers, to help those who are weak, so that they will be able to stand in the judgment. And this, at this time, I'd like to just take a step back and look at the description now of the Ancient of Days. It says, Whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. Um, someone please read for us Isaiah 1, verse 18. So God says, come now, let us reason together. Even though your sins are like scarlet, even though they're crimson, I will make them like as white as snow and also like pure wool, which is also the description of the Ancient of Days. And God is telling the sinners, come to me, let us reason together. You don't have to do, you know, crazy penances, just come to me. We'll work things out, and you can become in my image. You can be restored in the purity as though you never sinned. And there's a word for that. That word is called justification. And the word justification doesn't only mean forgiveness. In the legal sense, justification means to prove innocence. It's not just a pardon. It's not just a forgiveness, although in Christian and biblical terms, they are synonymous. But God is not satisfied in just pardoning. He wants to make us as though we literally have never sinned. And that also encompasses, believe it or not, the ability to overcome sin in justification. And so, God has this description, 
And the next verse, he talks about sending forth his angels to fulfill his will to cleanse and to justify his people. And then after all that, it says, the judgment was set. So in other words, the judgment is not set until God has his thousands of thousands, ten thousand times ten thousands of ministering spirits and angels to help those who are weak. That's why God's throne is called the mercy seat. It is where he passes judgment, but yet it is where his mercy is renewed every morning. It says, The judgment was set, and the books were opened. Now, for the remainder of tonight, we're going to focus on these four words. The books were opened. Now, what books are these? I need a couple people first to read um, Philippians chapter 4, verse 3, and then Revelation 21, verse 27. Let's just start with those two. Now, how many books are there? Just based on this verse, don't give me a specific number. We can, we can conclude it's more than one. All right? Simple conclusion. There's more than one book. All right, Philippians 4, verse 3. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. All right. Revelation 21, verse 27. it mentions it a couple times the Lamb's book of life that's the first book the book of life is open okay next verse Malachi 3 verse 16 this one you may not have heard of before but let's look at it together Malachi 3 verse 16 So there's another book called the Book of Remembrance, and these are this book is specifically written for those that fear the Lord. So these are for the righteous people, those that truly love the Lord. Now I have a quotation here. It's from Testimony, Volume Four, Testimonies to the Churches, Volume Four, Page Three Eighty Four, Paragraph Two. Okay, let me go through this real quick. The great day of the execution of God's judgment seemed to have come. Ten thousand times ten thousand were assembled before a large throne upon which was seated a person of majestic appearance. Several books were before him, and upon the covers of each were written in letters of gold, which seemed like a burning flame of fire, ledger of heaven. One of these books, containing the names of those who claimed to believe the truth, was then opened. Immediately I lost sight of the countless millions around the throne, and only those who were professedly children of the light and of the truth engaged my attention. As these persons were named one by one, and their good deeds mentioned... Their countenances would light up with holy joy that was reflected in every direction. So this book is written, Book of Remembrance of Those Who Fear the Lord, is a book recording the good deeds of the faithful people of God. And God will look at that book, and He will judge them out of that book, saying, Oh, look at all these things that you've done. 
because they have been made, they have been washed in the Lamb's blood. There are no more sins. But that's coming to the next point. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 1. This one is a little bit more ambiguous, but we can make it clear a little bit. Let's look in Jeremiah 17, verse 1. This one is not as clear, but let's, let's look at it. Chapter 17, verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altar. Now, it doesn't specifically mention a book, but it does mention it is written. It is written somewhere. And the record evidently is in heaven because in the same, the next paragraph, of the same passage from where we were reading, uh, Testimonies, Volume 4, page 384, paragraph 3, this is what it says. Another book was opened, wherein were recorded the sins of those who professed the truth. Under the general heading of selfishness came every other sin. As the Holy One upon the throne slowly turned the leaves of the ledger, and his eyes rested for a moment upon the individuals, his glance seemed to burn into their very souls, at the same moment, every word and action of their lives passed before their minds as clearly as though traced before their vision in letters of fire. So the third book, simply based on this quotation, is a book that is recorded the sins, the book of sins. And we know that this is, we, we can see this in other places of the Bible. And um, we'll look at that, we'll look at those in just a moment. We'll, we'll, it'll become a little bit more clear, I believe. So these books, four, uh, three books were open. First, Book of Life, Book of Remembrance, and Book of Sin. Now these three books were open, but how were they used in the judgment? We got, a, we got a glimpse of them already. Got a glimpse of the usage. But let's look in just a few verses. There are a lot more. But let's look in Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32, verse 33. And the Lord said unto Moses, Whosoever hath sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. So which book is that? The book of life. Because the, the book of life records the names of individuals, right? So whosoever has sinned, him will I blot out of my book of life. So for those who have sin on the record, their names are blotted out of the book of life. Okay, let's look at another verse. Uh, New, New Testament, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So for those who repent and are converted, what will be blotted out? Their sins. So these books are opened if they have, uh, if they have repented and been converted, confessed and been converted, their sins are blotted out of the book of sin, and their names are recorded in the book of life. But if they come before the judgment and they did not confess, they did not repent, and they were not converted, their sins are recorded, but their names are blotted out of the book. And also, just as 
additional step. We didn't look at it. But if their sins were blotted out, they are then judged out of the book of remembrance, like we saw in the quotation. So then God looks at their works and they say, and God sees only righteousness, which came through, of course, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and having Christ within us. And that is the process of the judgment based on these three books. So as we continue, we see that um, the judgment will be finished when these books will be closed. The judgment will be finished when the cases of the people of this earth are determined. So that's the judgment picture that we're seeing in Daniel 7. The books were opened. And through the process of the judgment, individually, for each individual person, the final conclusion, or the close of their probation, so to say, is when one of two things happen. Either their sins are blotted out, or their name is blotted out. That marks the individual close of probation. So for each of us individually, there will come a time, uh, perhaps it's at death. For When death comes, that is the end of a person's probation because you, know, you don't come back to life. But there will come a time where probation will close for the whole world. We understand that when we come to Daniel chapter 12 and then later on in the book of Revelation. And at that time, all of the sins will be blotted out that have been confessed. All the sins that will ever be blotted out would have been blotted out at that point. And what that means is that when God blots out your sin, there can be a whole Bible study, a whole series on this. But let me just give it to you. This is, this is, the, whole, this is the whole point, I think. This is the, the, the final climax and the final glorious end of the investigative judgment. When the sins are blotted out, it is erased. And the Bible says it will be blotted out of our consciousness. There will be no more memory of sin. That means everything that we've done in our past that we have confessed, repented of, turned away from, it will be forgotten. And more than that, God has said, as the east is to the west, so have I separated your sin from thee. And thy iniquity, I blotted out that transgression as a cloud, and thy iniquity have, will I remember no more. So even God himself will not remember our sins. And that is the fullest definition of the word justify. Because at that point, God can literally look at us and say, he's never sinned before. He can literally say that because the sins have been blotted out of existence. And when we come to that point, for us, although we will still have you know, a time to live on this earth with our sinful human nature, we will feel sinful still. We will still feel as though we are not worthy before the Lord. But our sins have gone before us in judgment and they have been blotted out. Granted, we have been, repent we have been repentant, confessed, have been converted. That is the judgment message. It is not a, a message where God is trying to discover who He can punish. He is trying His very best, even in Daniel 7 we see, so that He can blot out and fully, truly justify His people. Because, taking this one step further, when there is a group of people that can be justified like that, only then can God Himself 
be justified. God can only be justified then. So that is the good news of the judgment. Now I know I'm going a little bit over, but let's. I just need to make a few more points on this before we close. Okay, back to Daniel 7. Verse 11. I beheld then because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake. I beheld even till the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beast, they had their uh, dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for time and season. Now, these two verses suffice it to say that God placed the vision, or Daniel specifically mentioned this, because in the previous few verses, when he looked at the little horn power, he saw that this power was different. This power was, was somehow very devastating, sitting on the dreadful beast. So he saw the judgment scene of God, and in his mind he's thinking, this must be the end of the little horn power. What's going to happen to it? So he looks back at the little horn. And when he looks back at the little horn, God simply gives him the vision to comfort him, just to just to, from the very beginning, at the get-go, put him at ease and say, don't worry, this little horn power will have its time, but at the end, it will be destroyed. So Daniel goes through the whole vision. He can see the very end. He can see, ah, one day God will destroy this little horn power. He will be victorious. I can be a little bit more relaxed because the remainder of the chapter talks about this little horn power and all the terrible things that it does. And uh, Daniel, at the end of the vision, was very disturbed by that. So suffice it to say, he sees the destruction of this little horn and the beast. Now verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Already we mentioned, this takes place after, after, 8031, after 538. So this happens, uh, Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. Let me just give you a few verses. Um, Psalms 104, verse 3, and then Psalm 68, verse 17. These two verses simply say that the clouds of God, or God rides on the clouds as His chariot. And the second verse, it says that the clouds, or the chariot of God, are His angels. So God, Jesus is coming in before the presence of the Father, riding the chariot of his angels. And this just proves another thing. If he came before the Father, and the Father came into the whole, most holy place, that must mean that Christ somehow was somewhere else, prior to the beginning of this judgment. Christ had to come from another location. He was not physically in the most holy place when he ascended. We already mentioned that. He came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and they brought him near before him. Verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. So the purpose of this judgment based on verse 14 is to give the Son of Man and notice, Daniel says the Son of Man. This was long before the incarnation of Christ. So Daniel somehow saw in the vision the promise of the Messiah already fulfilled. So that to Daniel is also a source of great comfort and peace, I'm sure. So the Son of Man comes before the Father. 
there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, in order for there to be a kingdom, there must be several things. First, there must be a king or a leader. And Christ is the leader. He already has that. Second, there must be a territory or a city. And he already has the New Jerusalem. And third of all, there must be a law. And he already has the law. All he needs left is his subjects. The people to be citizens within his kingdom. And this is what the judgment is all about. It's determining those who have a fitness and also those who have the desire to become a citizen in the kingdom of the Son of Man. So during this judgment hour, it's not so much God trying to you know, cut people off, but God is, trying, God is going through, so to say, an application process. And through what you do, what we say, what we confess with our lips and our mouth, that is how we are applying to the kingdom of the Son of God and the Son of Man. And as God looks at the record, He looks through the deeds of our life, the decisions that we've made, the chances that we've had, um, the sacrifice and the surrender that we've made to Christ, and then He can say, yes, He is a citizen, or no, He's not a citizen. And thus, at the end of the judgment, this will make up... Um, this will make up the, the citizens of Christ. Now, there are a couple other verses, um, but let's just look at one last one. Back in Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 1. It says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was, since there was a nation even to that same time. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And that's, that's the hope that we have. Because God has done everything for us to stand in the judgment. And the judgment in the end, when our, when our names are written in the book of life, even though there be a time of trouble, we cannot be moved. Because the Lord has already gone before He's already sealed us, so to say. Okay, I know we flew through this. Uh, there is a lot more that we could cover, but that's the general picture, the big idea. And um, we'll have to cover more when we come back in a few weeks. So why don't we kneel together for prayer? Father in heaven, be see so much in just a few verses in Daniel 7 here. And as we try to understand these things, we realize our finite minds are so um, incapable of understanding these deep things. And Lord, we realize there's so much more you want to teach us. Uh, you want to help us to understand the, your mercy and yet your justice, how they are mingled together in perfect balance and you want us to know how to live our lives so that we can stand in the day of judgment so that we can truly be a citizen of the heavenly country I ask Lord that you will guide us as we continue to study be with us as we take a few weeks um, break from this Bible study protect all of us wherever we may go 
and bring us back safely together as we continue to study your word. We love you, Lord. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.